Well, we invite any uh, kids here, kindergarten to second grade, to go uh, to Children's Church if they wish while we get ready to study God's Word. In Isaiah, do you remember Isaiah? We were studying that a couple weeks back. We're still in our sermon series in Isaiah. And today we come to a passage in Isaiah chapter 14. So if you could take out a Bible or a pew Bible, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, Isaiah chapter 14 is found on page 689. Take out one of those pew Bibles and turn to page 689 as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We'll be in Isaiah for probably till the new year. Isaiah chapter 14. Today we're looking at verses 24 to 27. Let me read this passage before we study it. The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned it, so it will be. As I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? When you talk to uh, American evangelical Christians about the uh, spiritual state of affairs in our country, there seems to be a consensus of sorts that uh, the culture in which we live is becoming increasingly hostile to traditional Christian uh, beliefs and faith and values. Uh, it seems to be this kind of census, consensus among uh, evangelicals that I talk to. Uh, whether it's symbolic things like trying to take God out of the Pledge of Allegiance, which is, I mean, it's kind of symbolic. It's not as big of a deal in, in the grand scheme of things. Or whether it's more substantive issues like uh, curriculum being pushed through schools and assemblies being pushed in public schools that promote every kind of religion and every kind of worldview and every kind of alternative lifestyle except biblical Christianity. You know, you can talk about anything you want in public schools today except Jesus. It, you know, the Bible, you can't go there, but you can sort of promote and talk about everything else. And so, you know, we kind of get a sense as Christians sometimes that the, the sun is uh, setting a little bit on on our faith uh, here in this country, that maybe the future is not going to be as um, open to the Christian faith as it is today. Of course, it could be way worse. In fact, it is way worse in a lot of parts of the world. I I'm sure you're aware that uh, in many countries, this morning, while we are sitting here worshiping in freedom, in many countries, our brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing persecution. In, in countries around the world, this morning, Christians are being uh, ostracized, um, harassed, imprisoned, fired from jobs, uh, beaten, and in many cases killed, murdered for their faith, is, is still taking place today. In fact, uh, the estimates are that there's more martyrdom of Christians taking place today than at any time in the history of the world up to this point in nations around the world. Uh, for instance, uh, there's this... Um, website uh, that I found. It's called Open Doors. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Uh, they keep what they call a world watch list where they rank the countries of the world 
in terms of the severity of persecutions there. And they update it a couple times a year. Uh, can you guess who, who currently they rank as the most uh, fiercely persecuting nation of Christians in the world? Can you guess which one it is? Go ahead and shout it out. I'll just laugh if you're wrong. <laughs> Anyone take a guess? Sudan, that's, that's up there. I think that's like number 15, actually. Can you believe there's 14 more than Sudan? Yeah, North Korea is number one. Uh, number two is Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, if you convert to Christianity from Islam, you can be killed. If you evangelize anybody, if you evangelize a Muslim in Saudi Arabia, you can be imprisoned or killed. If you're caught worshiping in Saudi Arabia, if you're caught worshiping Christ, you can de be deported or arrested. So it, it, it's a really fierce place. There's a, a country, another country that's high on the list is Iran. Is number five that they put on their list. And there's a story I read about a, a pastor in Iran. He was uh, imprisoned for his faith on charges of blasphemy. And he was put for many years in a prison cell that apparently was so cramped he couldn't stretch his legs out. He was just in this little hole. Uh, during that time, uh, public pressure was sort of put on his wife to divorce him. She did. She was forced to marry a Muslim man. Uh, finally, it was decreed that he was going to be executed for his faith. Uh, this received, for some reason, international publicity. I don't know how the word got out, but all around the world, this was, uh, the news was spread this was sort of in the mid-90s. And uh, as, as international pressure was brought to bear on Iran for this uh, upcoming execution, they sort of buckled under and they, they let the guy go and he was set free. But a few uh, weeks later, a fatwa was issued in the, uh, the newspaper there in um, the capital of Iran and it, it, it calling for his death. And a few months later, his body was found brutally murdered in a park. You know, this is what believers are living with around the world in other places. And it raises the question, is God in control of the nations? Or are there some things in the world that God's just like, I just can't control that. That's, just, that's over there and I can't get my hands on that. You, you know, what reigns in this world? Is it the word of God or is it the fatwa? Who is in charge? Is it God's plan or is it the plan of totalitarian governments? Who is it that is governing this? Is God really behind the wheel with his hands on the steering wheel or has he been nudged out by other hostile forces? Uh, in America, is God still in control of our country? Or uh, have secular forces sort of elbowed their way and elbowed God out of Washington and out of Hollywood and are they going to dominate the future of our nation? Does God have a plan for us? And you could take that same issue from a national, international level down to our lives when we go through difficult times, when we go through downturns and struggles, and we ask, you know, God, are you still there? Are you, are you busy? Are you paying attention to someone else? Is someone else having a crisis and you can you know, take care of me for a while? Do you forget about me? Where are you, God? Are you still in control? Do you still have a plan? Or am I just sort of going through the rapids of the universe, bouncing off rocks wherever the current takes me? Or is God in control in some way? Uh, God's people have asked this question down through the centuries. And in the time of Isaiah, God's people were asking this question. Uh, Isaiah ministered in the 8th century B.C. And it was a difficult time for the people of Israel as we've been studying. If you've been here the past couple months studying Isaiah, you know it was a, a time of um, international upheaval for Israel. Do you remember the, the superpower that was dominating the region at that time? It was the kingdom of Assyria. And Assyria was... They had a plan, a strategy of global dominance. They were taking by hostile force every nation that they could gobble up and take into their empire. In fact, if you take out your sermon notes for a minute, this bulletin, this little thing in your bulletin, 
You'll notice there's like eight pages today. That's what happens when I go on vacation for two weeks. I just... <laughs> you get the Boston Sunday Globe sermon notes. So anyway, it just, I had to just get all this out and I put it in here. Uh, if you notice on the front, here's a timeline, just a timeline we've seen before. It's a, a list of the kings at the time. You'll see Isaiah's ministry is that black line about two, a third of the way down. That's the, about when Isaiah ministered. We don't know the exact uh, beginning and end of his ministry, but he ministered uh, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. And then underneath that you see the Israelite kings. And you'll notice below that the Assyrian kings at the same time period. And, and what I've added in this um, diagram are arrows representing the major Assyrian incursions into Israel at this time. So you can see from the beginning of Isaiah's ministry to the end, Assyria was causing all kinds of trouble. In 732 B.C. they, they conquered much of Palestine in the north. In 722 B.C. they invaded again and, and gobbled up Israel in the north. In 701 B.C. they came and besieged Jerusalem. So throughout Isaiah's lifetime, the question was raised, is God in control or is Assyria in control? Is God, uh, does he determine the future of our nation or does Assyria and its gods and its plans for global conquest determine what's going to happen to us? Who's behind the steering wheel? Whose plan is going to prevail? And this political military crisis really evokes and stimulates a faith crisis. Will we trust God when it seems that everything is falling apart and believe that he is still in control, that he does have a plan, or, or do we just kind of go with the flow? Does Israel trust God, or do they say, well, God must not really be paying attention to us. Let's trust Assyria and go with the gods of the Assyrians. Uh, do Christians in Iran and in North Korea and in uh, the highlands of Vietnam where there's severe persecution, do Christians in those places around the world continue to hold fast fast, despite the fact that their home churches are being broken into by secret police and they're being imprisoned and their pastor is executed, do they still hold fast and believe that God has a plan or do they just give up and capitulate to the, the, the communism or the Islam of their totalitarian government? Uh, in our country, do we believe that God is in control or is you know, the supreme judiciary of Massachusetts in control? Who's in control of the direction that our country is going? Who do we trust? And in these, these dark moments, we have to take that step of faith and say, I believe that God has a plan. I believe God is still in control. Why is this happening? I don't know. But I believe that he's still God and that he's sovereign. And that is the message that Isaiah gives to Israel. In the midst of this Assyrian threat, verse 24 of chapter 14, he gives an assurance that God has a plan and God is in control. It says in verse 24, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned it, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my holy mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? The answer, of course, being nobody. Nobody. God is in control. God has a plan. That's the first thing I see in these passage, this passage. God has a plan. Uh, God has a, a big plan, a comprehensive plan. He has a plan for the nations. God is not improvising. 
God is not playing it by ear. God's not just reacting, responding to things that happen. Uh, God doesn't run the world the way I run my family. Uh, <laughs> you know, I have four children now. It's great. Uh, but the, the slogan in our house, of course, is, Thank you, Lord, for four, but please no more. And uh, we, we, we say that in our prayers at night. Um, you know, the thing about having four kids is, uh, there's always a crisis somewhere in the house. And the other thing about four kids is you never know where everyone is at any one time. There's just always something happening somewhere. And so a lot of it's just reacting to these needs. And, and uh, you know, I'll be holding the baby and there's the two-year-old. And then I'll hear down in the basement like, you know, so I'll like, you know, put the baby down and I'll run downstairs and, you know, kiss someone's knee that fell down. And then I'll come upstairs and then there's the two-year-old with like a plastic plate, like whacking the baby in the head. Like, no, you're just going from one to the other. And I think sometimes we, we, we feel like that's how God is running the universe. You know, like, well, this all this stuff's happening to me. Maybe God's taking care of one of his other kids. Because he couldn't be taking care of me right now, not with this. Maybe he's off taking care of someone else. Maybe God is, you know, running around. And maybe he's, he can't pay attention to North Korea right now. Maybe he's focused on, you know, Brazil or something. And he, he's focused there and, oh, my goodness, oh, Saudi Arabia, I better take care of that. You know, is God running around like that? And the picture we have from Scripture is, no, he has a perfect plan that everything that is happening is following God's intentions and design throughout human history. God does not run, thank goodness, He does not run the universe the way that I have to run my house. Uh, God has a plan. Notice two things about God's plan. Two characteristics or aspects of the plan of God. The first thing is that God's plan is certain. It's certain. It will happen. It's going to happen. Look at verse 24. The Lord Almighty has sworn. So God takes an oath. And God doesn't need to take oaths. He's not in a court or anything. But he takes an oath to communicate the certainty of his actions. That's what it communicates to us. In other words, God says, I promise it's going to happen. And when God takes an oath, that means he is going to leverage all of his divine power to accomplish that which he has promised. If God says I'm going to do it and I swear I'm going to do it, trust me, it's going to happen. Because God's ways are certain. God's, God's plans are certain to take place. This is very different from human plans, of course. Human plans are, are contingent. Human plans are, are possible. Uh, maybe you made plans to go to the, the vineyard this weekend or something, and your plans got rained out this weekend. Or you make plans to go into New Hampshire, and then, you know, at four in the morning, your five-year-old just starts barfing all over, and, you know, you're like, oh, nuts, you can't go to New Hampshire. I mean, you know, that's how human plans work. Uh, those of you who do strategic planning in your businesses... You make five-year plans. You make long-range plans. You know that a good strategic plan must be a dynamic document. It can't be static. You can't just make a five-year plan, and no matter what happens in the next five years, just rigidly stick to that five-year plan. I mean, you've got to be able to adjust because things happen in business. Things happen in economies and in cultures, and you have to be able to adjust. In fact, we say that a good human plan has multiple contingencies. That if you make a really good plan, it'll have a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D. And, and we admire human plans that have options and fallbacks and fall fallbacks. But God's plans are so different. God doesn't have any contingencies. He's got one plan. That's it. And he's like, don't worry, it's going to happen. I swear, it's going to take place. As he says in uh, verse 24, Surely as I have planned it, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. Or verse 27, 
For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who could turn it back? Done deal. God has one plan. That's all he needs. That's it. In fact, uh, look at your sermon notes. Look on the inside. You'll see uh, there's a map of Assyria and its dominance in the period. And then there's kind of a middle one. Some of yours may be folded the wrong way, I think. It should say on page 3, the certainty of God's plans. If it doesn't, what you have to do is take that little origami here. You've got to take the middle piece and just kind of invert it and flip it. Ah, yeah. That's good. You're doing good. The manual dexterity test. All right, so, and it should say, now it should be like a map, and it should say the certainty of God's plans. All right, we're all there. Look at, look at what the rest of Scripture says. Here's a, a sampling from elsewhere in the Bible. Job says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 33.10, The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. His purposes of His heart throughout all generations. Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. God's plans are certain. But not only are they certain, notice the second thing about God's plans. God has a plan. It's certain. The second thing I know is another C for you. It's comprehensive. Number two, it's comprehensive. It's certain and it's comprehensive. Look at verse 26. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. So it's not just that God is kind of sick of what's going on in Assyria and so he hatches some quick plan to fix things there. He, he has this comprehensive plan. And God's plan includes everything from the, the great events and, and uh, flows and ebbs of the nation all the way down to sparrows and human beings. Even my heart is somehow in his plan. And here we come to a great mystery. I know some of you are like, how can that be? And my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> He's just God. The Bible declares throughout the Bible that He is absolutely sovereign over everything, even over human free will. And you say, how can that be? And my answer is, I don't know. Because He never told us. He just says He is. And we go, wow. And He goes, trust me. I go, oh, I hate that. But that's how it works. God is in, He's God. And, and we don't have His knowledge. Uh, for instance, look at your sermon notes again. This is just a sampling. I know some of you struggle with this idea. So I'm just going to challenge you. Read the Bible. Read the passages that, that are listed here. Just let the verses... Don't, don't sit there and try to philosophize it. Just sit there and listen to what God says about His plans. And just, you know, sit with it. It's amazing when you see the scope of God's plans in the Bible. Uh, here, under the comprehensiveness of God's plans, it says Ephesians, in Ephesians 1.11. It's kind of a theme, theme verse. In Him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything, everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Everything that happens. That includes, number one, nations and rulers, which is obviously what we're studying here in Isaiah, the, the big uh, movements of nations. But it's more specific than that. Look on the next page. Number two, He controls nature. Look at the second scripture quote. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. God controls nature. Everything that happens, he, He's sovereign over it. It fits into His plan. It's comprehensive. Number three, every aspect of our individual lives. Job 14.5 Man's days are determined. 
You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. Or look at uh, two quotes down, Proverbs 20, 24. A man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? Or Proverbs 21, 1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God is in control. It includes individual salvation. Here we come to that easy-to-understand doctrine of predestination. Uh, Don't understand it, but I know that God does it. He has chosen some to be saved and chosen to leave others in their sins. I don't understand that, but he's God. In fact, uh, if you look look at that first quote, In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. The reason I'm a Christian, the reason I chose God, the reason I chose Jesus is because Jesus first chose me. Or uh, evil and calamity, number five. This is a tough one. I, I'm not saying things here that I understand very well. I'm just saying this is what the Scripture teaches. Even evil and calamity in the world is part of God's plan. Not that God forces people to sin. We sin because we want to sin. But God somehow has woven it into the whole plan so that it's accomplishing His purposes. Uh, Isaiah 45.7 here. I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Amos 3.6 When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? And of course, the ultimate picture of God using sinful and evil men is the crucifixion. If you want to know any theological mystery, I think you can find it all on the cross. Every theological mystery that makes us scratch our heads, you look to the cross and it's there. It's in the cross of Christ, including predestination and free will. It's right there in the cross. Because on the one hand, you have sinful men who freely put Christ on the cross, but it was also part of God's plan. So look at this bottom quote. Peter says to the crowds, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. You did it. You're guilty. But guess what? God planned it too. And so it's a great mystery how God does all these things. For those of you who want to dig into it, I I, I made a longer little theological treatise on God's plan and human free will, just to further confuse you. So you can read that sometime if you'd like. But the main point is, God has a plan. It's certain to take place, and it includes everything. Everything, everything is part of God's ultimate plan. And it's a great mystery. How he does it, I don't know how he does it, but he does it because he's God. God has a plan that includes every aspect of our lives. But you know, rather than frustrating us, I think that should give us great comfort as Christians. Because it means that the God who loved me enough to send Jesus to the cross has a plan for my life. That nothing is taking place in your life right now as a Christian except what God has orchestrated and, and put together for you. That It's happening according to his plan. In fact, I want to show you one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I've I've quoted it before. It's in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28. Turn to Romans 8, 28. I'll tell you what, this verse will get you through a lot of hard times. It's on page uh, 1119 in the New Testament, Romans 8, 28, page 1119. Romans 8, 28. One simple little verse. Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Three simple observations about this verse. First of all, all things. We know that in all things God works for the good 
Not just the big picture, not just the grand scope, but in everything that happens, even in the smallest events of my life, even in that frustrating thing that happened to you right before you came to church this morning and you came to church so frustrated and you're worried about what's going to happen this afternoon or those relatives coming over. I mean, everything. God is working it together for good. It, it, all things are He's working together for good. Number two, what I want you to notice is that all things work together for good, not that all things are good. That's important. It doesn't mean that everything that happens in our lives as Christians is good. There's a lot of garbage that happens in our lives, a lot of bad things, a lot of suffering. So a lot of times it's our own fault. We bring it on ourselves. A lot of times we can't help it. And those things, God's going to work together for good. It's not that those are good or we should be happy about them, but we know that God's going to work through those things for good. And you say, well, well, if God loves me, why would he do it that way? And again, my answer is, I don't know. But I do know it calls for faith. And I think perhaps that's the answer, is that he's calling us to faith. If he just laid it all out, we wouldn't have to trust him. But he, puts these, he takes us through the valley of the shadow of death so that we have to trust Him in those dark moments and step out in faith and believe that, yeah, that even though this is happening, even though I'm laid off, even though I got that doctor's report, even though my spouse walked out on me, I believe that God has a plan through all this for my ultimate good. And so it takes sometimes Herculean faith to trust that God is in control of these things. And the last thing I want to point out, this is important, that all things work together for the good of those who love Him. This is a promise for people who know Jesus Christ. This is not, and I think if you be careful, because sometimes people have this idea, I've, I heard people say it, well, I know it'll all work out in the end. Well, if you don't have Christ, it isn't going to work out in the end for you. Okay? I mean, it's bad. Things don't turn out for good if you don't have Christ. If I don't have Jesus Christ, that means I'm still in my sins, that means I'm still under the judgment of God, and that means I'm going to hell. Hell is not good. It's bad. So I need Christ in my life. And it's only as I have Jesus Christ and, and His death on the cross for me that I can be sure that God is behind me and that He's working all things uh, for my good. So we have to trust God in the midst of these things. Uh, there's a woman in our church who's having to trust God. Many of you know her. Uh, her name's Terry Tupper. Uh, she's a member of our church. And uh, she's going in for brain surgery tomorrow. Uh, she, she told me I could tell you this story. She, you know, if she makes, she has to go to Mass General, so she has to make it through the Democratic National Congestion. But if she does, uh, she's, uh, she's got this really serious brain surgery. She was born with a malformation in one of her uh, blood vessels in her brain, and it's, it's basically like an aneurysm, and it could go at any time. And so she has a really tough choice. You know, do I keep living with this sort of time bomb in my head that if it goes, I'm, I'm probably gone? Or do I take this surgery to get rid of it? The problem is the surgery is equally risky. Uh, this surgery is, I guess, apparently it's deep in her brain and they have to, you know, it's like millimeters. They have to be very careful. And if they miss it or if it ruptures, I mean, she could very well die tomorrow on the operating table. So, you know, we don't know if she's going to be around tomorrow afternoon. It's, it's sort of a touch-and-go thing. But the thing I want you to know is God is in control. In fact, it's going to be tough for some of you to understand, but when she was being formed in the womb... God put that there for His glory. It's not like God was making her and then suddenly God distracted and the devil slipped it in. This is part of His plan for her. It's not a punishment on her. It's not because He hates her. But He has intentionally brought her through this trial for her ultimate good and for His glory. And you go, how in the world is God going to get glory out of that? And my answer is wait and see. That's where the faith comes in. But I'll tell you what, she has such confidence, she has such hope. I was over with some elders praying with her on, uh, I think it was Tuesday, we went over, Tuesday afternoon. I'll tell you, man, this woman, she's just fearless. She's like, I don't care what happens. 
As I know I'm going to be with the Lord. She's not in denial. She's in faith. And she knows that whatever happens, she's with the Lord. Whether she lives or dies, Christ has is, is got her. She knows it's for her ultimate good. And she, she's laughing. She's cutting jokes. She's lighthearted. And again, I don't think it's just some sort of weird denial before surgery. I mean, it's just she has faith in Christ. She doesn't look forward to the surgery. She doesn't want to be in pain. Of course, she doesn't want this to happen to her. But she knows that God has it for her ultimate good. I'll tell you, one of the great things about being a Christian is you can laugh at death. A Christian can laugh at cancer. A Christian can laugh at getting laid off. A Christian can laugh at disease. Because we know that Christ is working it for our ultimate good and that He is in control. That this isn't a blip. God hasn't forgotten about me. But it's all part of His plan. And God is working it out. And so she's just She's free. It's just so cool. I'll tell you what, Christians die better than anybody else. People who don't know Christ, they don't know how to die. Christians know how to die. Because we are unafraid of the future. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so we have hope as Christians through all the vicissitudes of life that, the, that God has me in His hands. My future is not in the hands of a surgeon or an oncologist. My future does not rest in the hands of the HR department at work. My future does not rest in the hands of a school administrator. My future is in the hands of God, and those, those hands have nail marks in them to prove that He loves me. And I know that the hands with nail marks are holding me, and so I have total confidence in where God is sending me and what God is doing with my life. I know that I don't have to be afraid and that I can trust Him. And so we come to those crises of faith where God calls us to believe that He is in control, that all of these things are part of His plan. So I call you to faith. We need to have faith in God's sovereignty. In China today, God is in control. China is uh, number 10 on the persecution index. Uh, in uh, 1950, when the Korean War started, uh, China, the communist government, kicked out about 7,000 missionaries. There were about 7,000 missionaries in China. They all got booted. And that communism just took over. And they allowed a few state churches, but they expected Christianity to kind of dwindle and fade away. But now, today, there is an estimated 80 million Christians in China. It's amazing. It's a massive house church movement in China. It's all underground, taking place in secret places. The, the leaders of these house churches have typically been imprisoned, beaten, threatened, fired from their jobs. Uh, but, but they just keep going, trusting in God. So despite that darkness, despite all those missionaries getting kicked out, you'd say, well, God, you just got whooped by the communists. What is going to happen without these missionaries? God's like, wait and see. And now today, 80 million Christians. That's God's plan, working all things together for good. And this is a tested church. It's a purified church in China because they've been through it. And they know how to trust God uh, with all their heart. May God give us that same faith in the midst of the dark times to believe that He is sovereign, that He has a plan, that it's certain, it's comprehensive, and He's working all things together for our good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do pray that we might see You, that we might believe that You are God, that you're not simply some moral teacher or moral example, but you came and you were crucified and you were truly raised, that you are alive today at the Father's right hand, that you reign over all things. And God, I pray that we might believe that you have a plan for us, that we might, we not, might not buy into the humanistic view of the world that, that sees humans as the center of things. Help us to have a theistic view of the world. And, and let us believe that you're sovereign over all things, even if we can't understand it, Lord. Help us to hold on to that which glorifies you rather than robbing your glory by proclaiming that you don't control all things. 
God, I pray, help us to trust you. Help us to take all this theology and put it into practice tomorrow when things go south at work or at home or wherever with our health, with our loved ones. Lord, help us to trust you. I pray, God, pour out supernatural faith into the hearts of my brothers and sisters this morning. Lord, heal Terry Tupper. We pray that she might make it through this surgery tomorrow unscathed, that she might be in the rehab next week, praising you to everyone who will listen to her. And Lord, we know that if that's not your will, if, if, if her final day is Monday, we know you're in control too. And we praise you, God, that, for the life that she's lived. Lord, I pray for uh, brothers and sisters in this church who are moving away, the Aker family, the Bowman family, Cal Perkins. Lord, we're losing a lot of good families this week who are moving out of state all at once. And Lord, we thank you that this part of your plan, that you knew hundreds and thousands of years ago that this would take place. So, Lord, we trust you. And, God, now as we come to communion, as we come to celebrate Jesus, we pray that he might be here with us, touching our hearts. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.